This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. I remember sitting, I'm sitting in my office and I wrote the words, so if we can't trust God to keep bad things from happening to us, how do we trust God at all? And I stopped writing and I just sat there and then I got up from my computer and I did not come back for weeks, weeks, because I was like, I don't have an answer. I do not, I don't have anything else to say. Like, I don't know how to continue the book. If you're wondering how maybe some of those pastors or writers or thinkers you follow online seem to do it all, the answer is they don't. Here talking about her limits is Tish Harrison Warren. She joins me today on the podcast. She's author of the book Liturgy of the Ordinary, and her most recent release is Prayer in the Night. She has a newsletter in the New York Times and as well as a column at Christianity Today. But here we talk about how actually limits are good and where do we go when we just can't pray anymore. Listen in to my conversation with Tish. Welcome to the Finding Holy Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Hales, author of A Spacious Life. I love big ideas, but ideas have to move beyond an ivory tower to find their application in the midst of our work and our laundry routines. Here on the Finding Holy Podcast, expect conversations about how to live faithfully in a post-Christian world, but without the vitriol, posturing, or shouting across the aisles. In each conversation, you'll get to hear my guests' wisdom, their laundry routine, and for this season, also their hustle habit. Let's find holy together. All right, friends, it's really fun to have Tish Harrison Warren join us on the podcast. We're going to talk about her new book, Prayer in the Night, and some of the connections to my own book, A Spacious Life. It's going to be great fun. So thanks for being here, Tish. Yeah. Thanks for having me. You are so welcome. As we get started, I would love to just talk actually about your hustle habit because I want to talk about some of the changes in your own life. You have just, of course, you've authored two books. You are a priest at a church. Um, and yet you've also now have this kind of national platform where you are writing a newsletter for the New York times. Um, and as we were talking before, she was just talking about how her hustle habit has changed based on now writing this newsletter for the New York Times. If you don't know what the hustle habit is, I'm asking all my guests what their hustle habit is and this season. And you can go ahead and take that quiz yourself at aspacious.life. Tish, tell us what, what's your hustle habit. So when you bypass your limits and you're kind of dealing in unhealth and you're choosing hustle and hurry instead of leaning into God's good limits, what is your habit? I took this quiz twice, like once, like, I don't know, six months ago or something, maybe not that long ago. And then today, but today I got ignore. So I ignore my limits, which is probably pretty accurate. And that has gotten worse. I think since I've get, gotten busier, but also since I had my third child, I just right. 
<laughs> Mom, it's such a stereotype, but it's true that you're just trying to get everyone around you to be okay and to survive. And <laughs> often forget. So I, I see this in small ways. I mean, I often don't eat lunch. I just eat whatever my children have not eaten on their plates. Yeah. Um, so it's like literally not sitting down and taking care of feeding myself. I'm like, yeah. I mean, I'm literally eating the crumbs off of the table that my children leave. <laughs> I understand that. The other day, I just like, just being I, like the metaphor of that. Right. It's like the crumbs, you know, under the table, right? Is there a reason why, is it just because you have more on your plate? You think that then it's moved from, you were saying shame probably before to yeah. ignoring your limits. No, I think, I still think it's some kind of both. I mean, I don't know if this yeah. is like the Enneagram where it's like, you cannot be a six, <laughs> right? Yeah. one or the other. But I do think it's kind of, it's ignoring my limits. And then when I encounter them, which is inevitable, right? are real, then, so you can only ignore them from so, for so long, right? right. And then, right. so ignoring them. And then when I hit them, probably retreating into shame. Yeah. And so for whatever reason, the, the quiz picked up shame more last time. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I've changed or if it's just like where I am in the cycle or, I mean, I will say that because two, so because my work with my newsletter with the New York times and my column with Christianity today, both are very deadline based in a way that, um, you know, I'm also, I've, I'm also a priest and did campus ministry for years and years. And there's not like a lot of intense deadlines with right. those jobs. There are deadlines, of course. I mean, <laughs> Sunday morning, like, right? Yeah. Ready yeah. or not. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Whereas this is really like, you know, the largest newspaper in the world, I think is like, I have to get it in yeah. on a certain date every week it doesn't matter if I don't feel like it or right. if sick or if we right. have, like yesterday we have car trouble. Um, and I try to, so I have to work ahead enough because life happens. Right. Things yeah. happen. So, I mean, I do think that it's just a matter of there are more demands that yeah. are, that, that have to be met that, yeah. you know, that, that aren't optional. Like, right. You can't just be like, sorry, kid, you know, just care for yourself (laughs) over there because I got to write my column. Yeah, right. Two-year-old needs lunch. Right. Whatever. You can't just be like, well, get it yourself. Um, (laughs) Right. I wish, I mean, I've said that, but he doesn't, he doesn't. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't work out so well. Tell us how that your newsletter for the Times has maybe helped you rethink or maybe it hasn't helped you rethink, but maybe it's just kind of heightened how you view your work in the world as a writer and a Christian. So writing for, you know, a large publication that most of the time would have non-Christian readers. Has that changed kind of how you approach your, your vocation? That's a good question. So it's still really new. I mean, this is only, I think my fourth week at the time. So I can't speak too much to that because I'm still sort of learning it. Yep. I think. 
And it was crazy. I mean, it was certainly not something I was looking for. Like I didn't apply for this job. It, it just kind of, it just, they read my stuff and it, so it sort of came out of nowhere and then happened very quickly. So I'm still processing is the point, but I do think that I've always thought of my primary audience as being the church, as being Christians, mm-hmm. because I'm a pastor, I'm in ministry, I'm called to serve the church. So, you know, when I write for Christianity Today, there's an assumption that not everyone that I read this will be a Christian, but they're reading something called Christianity Today. So they're at least familiar (laughs) with that, have a background. Um, Certainly my books are, are, are kind of geared toward discipleship. So I try not to use Christian jargon a lot, um, just cause I don't actually think that's helpful for Christians very much either, Right. but I do use some, and there's a, there is an assumption that we share some presuppositions and thoughts and assumptions. And so it's interesting because with the times there's a little bit less of that, but I'm doing a newsletter on faith and right. I'm still speaking out of my, I was pretty sort of when we were, um, talking about it, you know, I, I said, you know, I can only really write out of my own voice at, which is I'm a Christian, an Anglican right. priest, I'm a female, I'm a mom, I'm, I'm tired. Um, <laughs> I, I can only write out of, out of what's right. true about me. Right. And so I said, you know, I'm not the person, if you're wanting like someone who has a lot of expertise in comparative religions or that can, you know, do a deep dive on Hinduism versus, you know, Christian concepts of the eternal, you know, I'm not, that's not me. And, um, and they really said, you know, they want it to be something where people are welcomed in to read this perspective, even if they don't share this perspective, or even if they don't have a lot of background in this perspective, Mm. but they still wanted it from my perspective. So I'm, I'm still writing very much out of who I am and and I believe. And, and I actually do think there's commonality to, um, of course, of course, there's a a difference between Christians and people who aren't in terms of the way we see the world and what we believe, but it's not a different species. Like I (laughs) I think that both of us, both that as someone who, who is not a Christian, can still look at kind of what's offered by consumeristic, individualistic, market-driven America and say, yeah, there's got to be more than this, right? right like I right. do think there's a longing for transcendence yeah. for more a longing for questions of meaning and questions of even, you know, what are we here for and right. <laughs> what happened? why do we die? And what happens then? And I mean, if someone's like, I'm a hard boiled atheist who finds my entire identity, sort of, uh, you know, trolling Christians on the internet, like <laughs> they're not going to like my pieces right. because they really right. do come out of my voice. But if they're like a person who is perhaps not a Christian, but is thinking about questions of eternal meaning or could there be a supernatural or even I think particularly, you know, I was an atheist, but 
it's really hard for me to explain love and transcendent feelings mm -hmm. of beauty. And it seems like the way that I love my, you know, baby is, is something spiritual. And I have no, mm -hmm. it, it can't reduce this to the chemical impulses of my body. Yeah. Um, so I think there's still those sort of questions banging around in people. Yeah. There's places of contact, I guess that's yeah. the best way to say. Yeah. Yeah. There's ways of contact. And I, um, talk to a mentor of mine who's really mentored me through my entire writing career. When I was deciding about making this decision and I said, you know, is it, is it a departure from my sense of calling? Because I, I did, you know, originally feel very called to speak to the church, to write for the church. And they said, and this kind of changed my life. They said, that's true, but one of the things the church most needs now is to know how to be in and to speak in the world, in yeah. the square. And yeah. so I hope to be sort of mm -hmm. modeling ways to do that. And also just that Christians don't have to be so in enclaves, thought yeah, enclaves, but, in enclaves, but combative, I think mm -hmm. is the word. I mean, you know, we don't have to see our neighbors as our enemies and, um, and, and maybe that's simplistic. I mean, I know a lot, I know, I personally know hundreds of Christians that don't see their neighbors as enemies, mm -hmm. but I think, you know, walking this space where we're neither fearful, like trying to like, I'm just like you. I'm a cool kind of Christian. I'm not like <laughs> those Christians, you know, right, so we're not, right, yeah. we're not constantly capitulating, right? but we're also not, you know, <laughs> knives out ready for a fight. Right. right. It's gotta be like, you know, James, James, Hunt, yeah. James Hunter, right. Where he talks about faithful presence within. And I think I love that. It, like yeah. there's a sense in which we are to be faithful and we are to be present and we are within, you know, the cultures that we live in rather than fighting right. or leaving the culture or. Yeah. So there's gotta be some space between capitulation and combat. Right. We're, you know, faithful. We're a faithful presence. I wish it started with a C compassionate conviction. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> if, we, if we could alliterate it, time. it's the next book, Tish. I know. I think we just wrote a book together. Yes. Awesome. <laughs> One thing I really love about your, your most recent book, Prayer in the Night, well, both of your books are just so tightly organized and it just makes me really happy. I love it. So uh, <laughs> oh, I'm so glad to hear that. My books deal a lot with me ignoring my limits. I mean, that's the yeah. interesting thing that you that that quiz said, because both of the books, I think I'm pretty honest about struggling with that. So what were those limits that maybe you were resistant to that you finally had to like lean into both in your experience in 2017 and obviously in the writing of this book? Yes. Following? Yeah. There were some practical ones and then some more kind of existential ones. So practically, I mean, some of this book grew up from the reality that that nights were really hard for me and yeah. they are in general but particularly when grief is deep 
I could get, I could stay really busy during the day and I could fill things up with kids ministry, but those quiet hours in the evening and nighttime when the kids are in bed and things slow down, I would just be faced with grief, loss, sense of doubt and wondering where is God in the middle of all of this and didn't know how to pray and didn't want to face the grief, like didn't know how to face the grief. I think just sort of sitting in a room alone and crying seemed sad and difficult, but also there was no, I didn't know where to find consolation would be like the Ignatian way of talking about comfort. Like where, 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 how can I find comfort in the midst of grief? I I don't think I even had that question yet um, because I don't think I realized how deeply important comfort is. Grief, when I was growing up in my home was always something you just sort of got over, Mm -hmm. kept going, didn't think about the idea that we need comfort wasn't really learned or talked about, you know? And so, so when I was encountering grief and loss, I just would, I'd stay busy. And then I would at night, just fill up nights with social media, with screens, reading political articles. It was 2017. So there was, you know, (laughs) we had just elected Trump. There was a lot of people writing think pieces and I read all of them. And there's nothing wrong, of course, with reading things, <laughs> but I was using it to numb. I was using yeah, it to yeah. people. And yeah. And so all that to say, some of this was like limits of my body, like yeah. to go to sleep was not right. like it, it was something that was, is, was difficult for me in grief. I'm realizing since, because I've had subsequent um, grief that, uh, that it is difficult. It remains. This seems to me a pattern mm-hmm. where I'm feeling really down on some about something that just surrendering to my bodily physical needs of sleep can be really difficult for me. Yeah. Part of it is that um a need for prayer, but not knowing how to pray. So my own sort of uh, I don't know if spiritual limit is the right word, but just resistance to silence, resistance to quiet, resistance to facing the things facing the bad feelings. And then ultimately a lot of this stems from struggles with trusting God, which were also limits on. (sighs) So the big word to use would be like epistemological limits, but to that just means sort of like how we know what we know and how we know what we can know. And I think that was, I was struggling with just the limitations of human beings to understand things like that. I'm just not going to be able to make tidy sense out of loss, right? Like to make this something that I can Mm -hmm. put a reason on or manage or control or make kind of make sense. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. Exactly. But then also the book deals so much with just the notion of vulnerability, yeah, um, which is, you know, it, the term vulnerability that comes from the Latin term to wound, vulner. It's woundable, right? Yeah. Able to be wounded. And so a lot of this is struggling with my own 
limitations in being able to um, predict what's going to happen, that tragedy can come anytime. So how do we keep living our lives? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Predict uh, or uh, my own limitations to protect those that I love the most. Like I can't keep my kids from suffering. I can't, I can't um, keep the world a a safe place. Like we're just vulnerable. And there's, there's really at the end of the day, I mean, I, I don't think we're all equally vulnerable. Obviously there, there are, there's all kinds of societal structures and privilege and lack of privilege. And, but at the end of the day, vulnerability, though it is not distributed equally, is distributed to all human beings. Yeah. Like we all are, no matter who you are, no matter how much privilege you have, like you're, you're not going to die. <laughs> world safe. Yeah. yeah. You're die and everyone you love is too. I mean, yeah. you're going to yeah. lose everyone you love and, yeah. and die. Do you ever feel like life is spinning faster than you can keep up with? Does it feel like a lot of times you're spinning all of the plates and you don't know if you can keep spinning them any longer or if one drops and they all start to fall to the ground? Like, who even are you anymore? We are worn out, not only from the last year and a half of a pandemic, but we are worn out from the stories that hustle and hurry tell us makes a meaningful life. I want to invite you into a more spacious life. My book, A Spacious Life, Trading Hustle and Hurry for the Goodness of Limits, actually gives you courage and rest and joy and purpose, not in doing more, but in recognizing how our natural normal human limits are the good guardrails that God gives us to follow for human flourishing. People have called it a breath of fresh air, balm for a weary soul, and I would love if you picked up a copy and experienced some of that freedom today. A Spacious Life is available wherever books are sold, and you can find the link in the show notes and find out more, including how to take your hustle habit quiz at aspacious.life. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. How have you, on the other side of writing the book, what does that look like for you to acknowledge that that vulnerability, that human loss, um, in a way that feels hopeful? 
what is for me a lot of the question comes down to trusting god yeah um and the entire book was because i wasn't sure i did <laughs> i did trust god or i could right. trust god or i even knew what that meant or how so really like it took me writing about 80,000 words over a couple of years and then whittling them down to about half of that that whole process of writing the book was God helping me struggle with how do I trust God? Early in the book, second chapter or something like that, I can't remember, but somewhere in there, I write this question. I talk about my my old pastor, my former pastor, yeah. Hunter, saying we can't trust God to keep bad things from happening to us. And so I wrote I remember sitting, I'm sitting in my office and I wrote the words. So if we can't trust God to keep bad things from happening to us, how do we trust God at all? And I stopped writing and I just sat there and then I got up from my computer and I did not come back for weeks, weeks, because I was like, I don't have an answer. I do not, I don't have anything else to say. Like, I don't know how to continue the book. I don't yeah. have an answer to the question. And basically the rest of the book is me trying to answer mm. that question. And it took all of that struggle with writing the book to be able to answer that question. So where do I come down at the end, I mean, so part of it is like, so I, was, I don't, you know, spoiler alert, like I want you to actually buy the book. So, but the trust really is rooted in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. It's that it's rooted that we have seen the end of the story. We have seen evidence of Jesus making all things new. We're not gonna be satisfied with an answer with this the book deals a lot with theodicy of how yeah. can God be good and all knowing and, and I'm sorry good and all powerful and bad things still happen in the world I don't think we're going to come up with like a, a logical answer for that I don't think there's going to be like a reason that we can give that makes suffering okay that makes mm -hmm. it okay that that children die that makes it okay that we have natural disasters that makes it okay that even normal stuff you know that we're disappointed with work that we have a broken relationship with our best friend or our husband or uh or a mom or whatever and so I don't think there's going to be like a tidy thing that makes that okay I think ultimately what will make that okay is Jesus setting things right but how do we know that's going to happen well the snapshot we've had of the end of the story is the resurrection so really my whole hope is that I think if Jesus is still in the grave there's not really any hope for suffering in the world I don't think Jesus is in the grave yeah. <laughs> so I'd say yeah. I think if someone's reading read the book the book yeah better. read the book <laughs> better in print than in uh, person for sure but um me too <laughs> I, think, um, I think that because this sounds like okay the, the answer is jesus this is kind of a sunday school answer but i i do think that um the story is the answer i mean mm -hmm. the, the the whole of uh, the, I, I quote this in the book but the 
there's a comment in um, this uh, Roman Catholic youth commentary that that I've read that says basically um, the entire story of God's redemption, like the whole story of redemption. I'm talking all of scripture, but even beyond like creation and fall and redemption and consolation, like this entire story of God's redemptive action in the world is the answer to theodicy, is the answer to how can bad things happen in the world? That's the answer. And so what we have is the story. Um, we don't have like a tidy little yeah. kind of you know, math equation that makes evil okay. We have the story and, mm -hmm. and we, and, and we believe it's a true story. So yeah. how, sorry, how has liturgies helped you like praying other people's prayers helped mm -hmm. you kind of embody that story, enter into that story? Yeah. I think entering into that story is the right language. It's, um, is that we learn this, we, so I can't really, particularly when I'm suffering and I'm not sure if I believe this stuff and I'm struggling with it, I can't sort of just walk around and hold the story in my head. Right. The way that, in fact, I honestly, it's good to have the story in your head, obviously, but the, I think the most important thing is to kind of get the story into us, like in a deeper sense where it affects our imagination, it affects yeah. our emotions, it affects our heart, it affects our impulses. Mm -hmm. um, and so the way we do that is through the liturgy, all kinds of liturgy. Mm -hmm. I mean, through the church calendar, through our, what our practices on Sunday, you know, together as a church, our, our kind of daily habits and rhythms and practices that in our time and our money and our bodies and our and the way we use our weeks and our months so in all of that is and and so um in the book i particularly talk about received prayer because for me in the time of really dark suffering and struggle with faith i couldn't conjure up words to pray i couldn't like make myself believe the story um, ardently enough to trust God. So I couldn't like conjure trust. So what was very helpful to me are the prayers of the church. And they came kind of like a life raft. Like it felt like, okay, you mm. can't pray. We know it was like the church said, we know there are times when you're not going to be able to pray. Yeah. We know that you don't know how. And so here's some prayers for these moments, for these times, it's just the sort of recognition of, okay, he, you're going to need this. You're going to need this life raft. Right. And so that was how the prayer was kind these prayers of the church led me back into prayer. Mm -hmm. So they led me back into the story. I mean, they did, but I think probably more importantly, they led me back to God, the actor in the story, the protagonist of the story, right? Yeah. Do you still find those, you know, do you still pray Compline? Does it feel like a life raft in the same way? Or how has your relationship to some of these 
things shifted. Yeah. As you found maybe the ability to pray again. I still pray Compline, but I pray it less often than when I was writing the book, but also really like the five years before I was writing the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I never, I didn't pray Compline to write the book. I didn't <laughs> write a book on it. Yeah. But, uh, but I think I need to do it more, honestly. I think um, some of it is just bad habits, getting into bad habits. We, yeah. Our son slept in the same room as us for a long time after he was born. And so um, for like a long time, like way longer than this normal <laughs> because we didn't have room in the house. There was yeah. no room for him. So he slept there, but that made it where we couldn't have lights on and stuff at night. And so that made it a little harder. Um, but then I just, but some of it isn't, some of it involved the book. I, I, there was a time after the book or the, towards the end of the book where I needed to take a break from it because um, I couldn't pray Compline without being like, oh, I should, I forgot. I need to put that in chapter seven. Right. You know, <laughs> right. Yeah. Like work. Um, but now I pray, I have a lot of the prayers of Compline memorized now from doing it. And so I prayed them like nearly, I think every night. So, um, but I don't sit down and pray full compliment. I just pray the prayers right. that I've memorized, yeah. which is a lot, but not all. What do you make of the maybe popularization of liturgical forms or received prayers? Yeah, yeah. there's yeah, kind of modernizations now with every moment holy. And, you know, there's a few other things that have kind of yeah. come. Good night. We could do an entire podcast about that question because yeah. I have thoughts and feelings about it, as you may expect. Uh, <laughs> so, so it's a mixed bag. Like all in all, I think this is a good thing. Like I would say no, nothing is totally pure and good in the world, but all in all, I would say this is good. I think there is a return, a, a, a longing particularly among evangelicals to kind of return to rootedness, to more ancient forms of prayer, understanding prayer less as self-expression and more as a way to encounter God. All of these things I think are to the good. Mm -hmm. The more that evangelicalism can sort of understand and embrace the parts of the broader tradition. So the more we become little C Catholic universal Mm -hmm. Christians, I think is good. So I think it's good. And I think it's coming from a place of, of longing for deep wells and deep roots. And that's good. Now, (laughs) (laughs) my concerns. So I should say, first of all, I love every moment. Holy. I I do too. Yeah. I own both editions of it. Liturgy is good. Liturgy obviously doesn't save us. It's not Jesus. Liturgy didn't die for us on a cross. But (laughs) it's a way way to intentionally um, get the story in us, right? And to walk into these gifts of the church that have been handed down, things that um, are proven, right? Things that endure. It's like with them. you know, like with medicine, the, the stuff that, that has, has remained, has been proven mm-hmm. is that's worked generation after generation after generation, you know, that's it's um, we go, Oh, okay. This is good for you. It's, it's, this, this is a good thing for you. And I think mm-hmm. it's the same that the church has 
the task of, of curing souls, right? Of, mm -hmm. of medicinal work on our souls. And so these, these things uh, like the reading of the Psalms, um, the, the daily reading of the Psalms, you know, they have this medicinal healing quality to that, to us that, that I think is really good that this is being handed down. But I also think like consumerism can eat anything, like it can just consume anything. And, um, and evangelicals, we are a marketing block. I mean, we are more than that. We, but that, but we, that is, part of what evangelicalism is and mm -hmm. I, it's my least it's the least godly least helpful part so evangelicalism i do think has good things to offer the world there are theological tenets of it that matter but it would i think it's too much to reduce it to its theology there's a sociological factor to evangelicalism that looks different in different places right like right, right. Uh, the sociology of evangelicalism in uh, Brazil or Thailand is different than that in, you know, white America. But part of that sociological factor here is that we we market a lot of stuff. I don't know. I mean, that we mm -hmm. live, there's a weird tension too. Right. I, I'm nervous about sort of Christian marketing and, but I do have, I have two books out and I don't think there's anything wrong with people being paid for their work. I guess I get skeptical when it's sort of like we need liturgy after new liturgy after new liturgy after new right. liturgy. The entire yeah. point of the liturgy is to be old, is to draw from ancient sources, is to yeah. endure. Now, I'm also okay with innovation. I mean, I think that's that the church has always innovated, right? We have air conditioning in the church. It's a good thing. Thank God. That's good. <laughs> um, but I think here's what I would say is that before people write new liturgies, particularly for gathered worship, we need to sit for a long, I mean, I'm talking like decades in just the plain old liturgy um, mm -hmm. and learn it because I think there's good reasons for a lot of it. And when evangelicals kind of get in and want to do the next big thing and we start monkeying around and think we can yeah. improve on prayers that are from like the third century, it's a lot of kind of hubris and yeah. we often don't know what we're doing. I'm all for incorporating liturgical things. I think that's good, but I get, I think we need to be skeptical of this being like the next marketing fad. Yeah. Um, it's a good Faddishness is like never helpful. Well, thank you for, yeah, this conversation. And thank you so much for reading my book too. I appreciate it. Yeah. Tish, as we end and conclude, I love asking all my guests about their laundry routine. It kind of comes from Kathleen Norris and the ways in which we meet God in our chores and in mundane life. So would you tell our listeners what's your laundry life look like? Sure. <laughs> it's like different over the years, but actually right now I feel like I'm like embarrassed to admit this because I mean, I shouldn't be, but my husband does the laundry. So I'm like, I don't have much to speak to, to this. So what it normally ends up like though, in practice is like, we are not very consistent with it. It's not like every Wednesday we do laundry. It fills up, fills up, fills up, fills up. Things are overflowing. Nothing is clean. 
And then finally, like he'll throw a load in. He typically, it's like his job or mm-hmm. whatever. Sometimes I'll do it, but he typically does. And then it's like, or it's, but it's not throw a load in. It's like, we will spend the next eight hours. Doing laundry. <laughs> yeah. Right. Then, you know, it's folded, you know, and I, and I put my, I put my own laundry up and, but, and then, um, but our kids don't. And so he typically puts it away. That's typically how it's been. This has recently changed because our kids have uh, uniforms in their school now, which is Mm -hmm. love. But because of that, we'll throw those in every week, um, just the week, but it's like literally just the uniforms. So it's like easy. Yeah. Um, and then we just hand them back to our children and they know they like can, they know where to put them. Yeah. So my answer is like, mostly my husband doesn't know at the beginning of our marriage, I did it, but we are, our chores are constantly shifting. Like who's doing what is something that we change up a lot. Mm -hmm. Like I did almost all the cooking at the first part of our marriage, almost all of it but he does a lot more now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do some, but I cook a lot slower than he does. And it drives him crazy. But, <laughs> and now sometimes we do it together, which has actually been fun. That is fun. Um, How so do you manage that with little ones? We have a pack, like a backpack that we put oh. our youngest in and he likes it huh. when you're cooking. Cause um, we're moving around. Yeah, exactly. And then the oldest have gotten, they right. don't, they can ignore us and, or we can ignore them and yeah. you know, they can sort of be around or help or whatever. So, yeah. So it's constantly changing, which is good for both our career flexibility. Like there's yeah. been times when he was in full-time ministry where I had to pick up a lot more. There was stuff times when he had to do more right now I'm working more. So it's good for our career flexibility. It's good for egalitarianism. It's sometimes not great for our marriage because it doesn't mean we have to be like it communicating about, okay, this is becoming too much for me. How can we figure out a different system? So a lot of our marriage is trying to figure out systems that work and those are always shifting and they shift a lot according to the kids' ages and how much kids can pitch in or not pitch in. These are all kinds of and how much either of us are working at a given time. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been really fun. Thanks for giving it to us. Yeah, you're welcome. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Tish Harrison Warren. She kindly endorsed my book, A Spacious Life. Here's what she wrote. Most of us in the West are trying to do too much. We wear ourselves out with our mad dash to make something of ourselves and secure a sense of significance. In A Spacious Life, Ashley Hales shows us a better path of flourishing by meditating on the goodness of creaturely limits and the wise way of Jesus. Her theologically rich and pastoral invitation to slow down is a needed tonic in our culture of ambition and excess. So thank you, Tish. I so appreciated her words of endorsement. Feel free to grab a copy of her book, A Prayer in the Night. It's linked in the show notes, as well as a copy of A Spacious Life. It is out and in the world. It's so exciting. So please pick up a copy, or if you've already read it, if you were an early reader, I would be delighted if you could just take a second and leave a review on Amazon or wherever you purchased A Spacious Life. 
As we are thinking through this sense of spaciousness in season five at the Finding Holy podcast, I want to leave you with a pocket practice. Pocket practices are little three by five spiritual formation practices that are available to you when you've ordered a spacious life. You can go grab them right now at aspacious.life. But I want to invite us into this moment where we just slow down and begin to practice in very small ways the presence of God. One thing I talk about in A Spacious Life is that we need ropes to hold on to, good guardrails. And it's said that farmers in the Great Plains actually would hold on to a rope that was connected from the barn back to the home. And sure, that limited their freedom, but actually in blizzard whiteout conditions, that rope was the thing that brought them back to safety. Scripture can also be a rope that helps us know where to go. It hems us in and gives us good guardrails to follow when it feels like circumstances or our own experience is spinning out of control. Prayers can do that too. And Tish talked with so much thoughtfulness about how the prayer of Compline was that for her. It was a rope to hold on to. So I invite you maybe right now just to even clench your hands Think and imagine that you're holding on to this rope, and I'm going to read just two verses of scripture. Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. I hope that encourages you today. It gives you something to hold on to. Again, go ahead and at aspacious.life, there's so many ways that you can connect with the message of this book. You can take your hustle habit quiz, and I would love to know if you have found your hustle habit changing during this season, just like Tish has. Besides that hustle habit quiz, you can find a roadmap that will help you think through more thoughtfully and clearly how to get out of that hustle habit. Of course, you can go ahead and order the book, A Spacious Life, and then you can also get those pocket practices. It's a free download and you can get all of that at aspacious.life. Thank you, friends, for being here Stay tuned. We have so many rich, wonderful conversations about how our limits lead us to love. I'll see you soon. Remember, big things matter, but so does the laundry. This episode was brought to you in part by Wheaton College's M.A. in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership, which prepares Christian professionals to serve others faithfully and excellently. Called to help people facing disasters, human trafficking, poverty, or displacement as refugees? Visit wheaton.edu hdl.